let's begin in verse 2. I know this is a, just a little bit of review, but after all, it's just a little bit, right? Uh, verse 2, and six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. There is that big 50 cent word, right? It's a, a word that we use yeah, probably almost every day, right? Uh, transfigured. What in the world does that mean? Well, in the Greek, the word is metamorpho. Uh, we we are uh, uh, know the word metamorphosis, right? It speaks of transformation. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, almost two weeks ago, I was flying from Chicago to Denver on Southwest Airlines, and uh, guess what group I was in? C. Yeah. And what does that mean? It means you get the leftovers of the seats that are in there. And most certainly it means this. You're going to sit in the middle of between two people, right? So I, my strategy was this. I'm going to look for the smallest people on each side that I can, and I'm going to sit there. And lo and behold, in the second row on the left, as I walked in, there was a middle-aged woman, and right up next to the window was this little girl. Yes, this is my spot. It's even at the front of the plane, right? And so I sat down, and, and um, the, the woman seat, seated to my left on the aisle uh, indicated that she was glad that I sat there because she wasn't sure she could take all of the conversation with this little girl all the way to Denver. <laughs> About eight years old, and, and uh, she was a chatty Cathy, I have to tell you. She, she was as gregarious as they come, and she, um, we, we began talking about a lot of different things, and, and uh, we ended up talking about color. She was coloring in a coloring book and had this box of colors, and the deal was this. I was supposed to guess what color this was. What was the name of that crayon? Then when, and there's some wild ones out there, let me tell you. There were 64 wild and crazy names. And then, then the next game was this. She was learning um, about linguistic stems. What in the world is that, right? <laughs> well, we know um, those of us who can recall our, our um, childhood education, we know about root words, right? That's, that's a new way to say root words. And she was talking about uh, Greek and Latin stems or root words. And, and uh, she, the, our new game was I was supposed to give her a word and she would tell me what the stem is. And so I would, started with things like bicycle. What's the stem in that word? It's bi because it means two, and there's two wheels on a bicycle, right? And it didn't go much further than that because that's education that's way in the past for me, right? So I, I'm, that little story is to illustrate that what we have here in this word metamorphosis 
the the word uh, it's it's a compound word meta and morph, and I need to correct. I was I was blessed by a brother who came to me after last service. Um, I, we talked about meta being that word that that means uh, simply um, kind of like the core reality that the word before, and it's always attached to something else. It's a Greek prefix, and and it's always attached to something else to speak of that which is behind or. Uh, behind a given idea or concept, the core idea. Um, morph, I said last service means change, but no, the truth is it, it, it is the Greek word for form. And so what we have here is the combining of these, this, core, this core idea, the core form of Jesus and um, we know that put, putting them together, the verb metamorphosis it, or the noun speaks of change. So we're, we're talking about the core form being changed. And that's what transfigured truly means. Some would say that the transfiguration unveils the reality of who Jesus really is. It unveils and certifies his deity. We know him to be the son of God after all. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this iconic passage and in verses 6 and 7, he says, speaking of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, be, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself of the fullness of deity to be made in the likeness of men. In other words, he metamorphed, if you can say that, as if that is really a word. He metamorphed in his condescension from being fully God to being, taking on the form of humanity, being made in the likeness of men. And that was, you could say, his first transfiguration or metamorphosis. But we know here in this passage, Jesus metamorphed again. And it is truly to reveal his true identity. He is the son of God. Look at verse three with me. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. What, what is this radiant white? What is that all about? Well, the Apostle John, in his gospel, in the first chapter, writes, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In his epistle, in his first epistle, John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
In 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul writes, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. One more, the, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter one, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. The apostle Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 2 this very simple statement. For in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This radiance that, that Mark describes here reveals Jesus' deity. And his deity includes purity. Purity. Purity is associated with holiness, with virtue, truth, and the ability to purify. Think about it. Jesus in all his deity is pure. Those who encountered Jesus during his ministry on earth, those who were religious, were concerned that Jesus' contact with those who were unclean would make him unclean, just as it would do for them. So they avoided people like lepers or the, Mary, or the woman with the issue of blood because they were considered to be unclean and therefore isolated from the community. But what does Jesus do when he encounters them? He reaches out and touches them, even embraces them. And what's going on there? Are, is Jesus made unclean? Absolutely not. Because Jesus in his deity is completely pure and therefore able to purify those he touches. I think that's a big deal. Jesus is not made unclean by the things of this world. Rather, those things that he touches, he sanctifies, he purifies. This deity that is of Jesus also speaks of position. Jesus has authority, wisdom, and is able to dispense judgment in that authority and in that power. Part of that judgment that he dispenses is the ability to give grace. I love that about him. Because in his deity, in his great power, that's precisely what he has done to us and for us. He's dispensed to us his judgment in that he gives us grace. That's life-giving. In his deity, we also see his power, his sovereign ability 
After all, he is the source of life itself. He is able to accomplish through his power anything that he wishes. After all, God, we know in gener- gener- generous, <laughs> Genesis, generous, Genesis, <laughs> chapter one, he spoke and all that has come into being has come in, came into being, right? He spoke and it flung into being. And that is the very same power that Jesus has. Finally, I think that, and I know that the list could go on and on, but another thing that is noteworthy is that, is that Jesus in his deity is praiseworthy. He is the one and only God, the one and only King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone is praiseworthy. Now, this business of the transfiguration This illumination of Jesus invites us also to consider the fact that this transformation, according to the New Testament, is not just for him. Rather, we look and we see this very same word that is used here, that is translated transfigured, we find it in the epistles. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the apostle Paul writes, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transformed is the very same word that Mark uses to say transfigured. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 3, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, and there's that word again, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That transformation is the new The new nature that Jesus gives us, it's his life in us. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul declares, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. In 2 Peter, Peter writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises Get this, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Partakers of the divine nature. What? Yeah. That's what the Lord has for us. Now note, Peter says we are partakers of 
the divine nature. We are not gods ourselves. We are not divine, nor will we ever be. It is not something we can do. We cannot become gods. And if you encounter that, that is not according to the scripture. And we can define it very clearly as heresy. Rather, we are partakers of the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? That means we get to, hmm, well, we get to access, we get to um, enfold, we get to become those who have part of the divine nature within us. Now, what does that look like? This is scary, isn't it? Divine nature stuff. Well, think about it. Is is there a possibility that humanity can love unconditionally? I think not. But as believers, God himself imparts to us his love, his nature, and enables us to truly do that, to love completely unconditionally. Not only does he give us that opportunity, but he invites us in to that reality. We are partakers of the divine nature. That's all speaking to the present. But what of our future? The apostle John writes in his first epistle, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. As believers, we are invited, we're called to experience metamorphosis, being changed into his likeness, to bear his image. Romans chapter 8. We are very familiar with this verse. Romans 8, 28. Many of you may be able to quote this from memory, but verses 29 and 30 are profoundly important for us. Paul writes, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We're talking about the transfiguration today. And that word glorified fits, does it not? It's interesting that Paul is certain of this. That these whom he's justified, he's also glorified. He's talking about you. Do you feel like you've been glorified? Let me tell you, you don't look like you've been glorified. (laughs) This is Paul's affirmation. He is so certain of this that he writes it in the past tense because this is our destiny as believers. 
that we will indeed be like him. Verse 4 in chapter 9 of Mark. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of wondering, okay, what did they talk about? Well, we have a clue. In one of the parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, we read, And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Departure. That word in Greek is exodus. Exodus, right? It means his exit. More precisely, it means Jesus' death. Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about his death, his departure, his exodus from the earth. And they were there to assist Jesus in preparation for his imminent, sacrificial, atoning death. Now, Moses represents for us the law. I mean, seriously, when we think about Moses, what do we think about? We think about the Ten Commandments, right? He represents the law. Elijah, on the other hand, represents for us the prophets, Many would say he was the greatest of the prophets. And it's important to understand that the law and the prophets were the scripture of the day for um, those in Jesus' company. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5, there in, on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, some would say that the Sermon on the Mount is uh, a collection of all of the, of the teachings of Jesus. Some would say, no, it's, it's one continuous sermon. What we do know is that it is, it is the most concentrated uh, gathering of the teachings of Jesus in all of Scripture. And therefore, I honestly, I would say it's the pinnacle of Scripture because what is Scripture about? It's about revealing Jesus. And there Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Part of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is the sacrificial atoning death of the Messiah. More precisely, it was the purpose. It was the purpose of Jesus' life. The death of Jesus was the purpose of his coming. Mark 10, just a little further beyond where we are right now, Jesus says in verse 45 of Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came. 
So back in verse, or chapter 9, let's look at verse 4 and 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. What happens to you when you're terrified? I mean, for me, very honestly, I get paralyzed. Even when I dream something that is terrifying, I freeze. And that's, I think, exactly what happened to the disciples with one exception. Peter's tongue. Peter rushes in where angels fear to tread. (laughs) And I wonder how often do we speak when we should be silent? This is the second time in just a few days uh, that Peter is talking where he should be listening. (laughs) Uh, At the end of chapter 8, we read that Peter attempts to admonish or even rebuke the king of kings and lord of lords. This time, however, Peter errs on the the right side of the spirit because humbly he says he acknowledges Jesus as rabbi. The word rabbi means teacher. Very specifically, it means master. And he captures the sense of the moment by saying, It's good for us to be here. But then he goes on. (laughs) Hey, let us build three tabernacles. Now, what in the world is this about? Building tabernacles. Well, the word tabernacle simply means tent. If you remember back in Exodus, um, the Lord gave very specific instructions for the building of what he called the tabernacle or a tent, the tent of meeting very specifically. And that's where the glory of God manifests itself by, by cloud during the day and by fire during the night. Some would say that that's what this is referring to. Others would say that, that um, no, this is referring to the Feast of Tabernacles. What is the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, that's a, uh, a feast in commemoration that the Lord, the Lord uh, declared should be remembered by the children of Israel. And, and that was the building of tabernacles or tents. So they should remember in a very tangible way the sojourning of Israel in the desert after they left Egypt. Um, I would say, you know, the truth is, I'm not sure that either one of those ideas is really what is going on here. It's good illusion, if you, if you will. But I think more specifically, what Peter is saying is, Lord, let's stay here a while. Let me build a tent for you guys. We're, let's stay here a while. This is great. We're on the mountaintop together, and the glory of God is right here. I want to stay a while. I think that's the reality for a lot of us when we have an an incredible experience of the presence of God. We want to stay there, and we want to memorialize our experience of God's presence. 
Hey, it's great to be here. I never want to leave. You know, high points in our walk with God are just that. They're high points. They're not meant to be our everyday experience. Now, there are those who would say, no, wait a second. God ex- God's intention for us is that we should be um, experiencing the presence of God and his power pegged at a 10 all the time. But that's not the way life is, is it? In fact, that's not how he created us. Think about it. Even the earth experiences seasons, the coming and going, the in and out of respiration, the in and out of the tide. There is intensity and relaxing. And that's God's intention. His intention is not that we should be at this incredible spiritual fervor pegged at a 10 all the time. We'd wear out. (laughs) No, rather, his expectation is, yes, we should also expect to return to the valley. That's where we live. And so what are these spiritual high moments about? Well, they're for our reflection. They're for our retaining and re-accessing hope that was gained in those moments. It's for our understanding. Those things that we learn on the mountaintop are to be brought to the valley and put to work being applied there. In times of crisis, think about it. We often want to return to what we used to do, what we used to be, how we used to live. And that's true of us spiritually. Many of us um, hold up a spiritual birthplace where, where we met the Lord for the first time And we think that's how it ought to be. It ought to be that way all the time. Maybe uh, it's it's where you grew spiritually like a weed. Maybe many of you have those experiences in maybe high school or college. You just are on fire spiritually and you look back on that and think, man, that's the way life ought to be. If I could only recreate that. Hmm. That's not what God intends. Let me, let me drill down a little more specifically. We are a Calvary Chapel here, right? And we have the pleasure of having many um, older saints who are uh, part of the Calvary Chapel heritage in Southern California. In fact, many here have told me of their experience growing up in the 1960s. God bless those days, right? Growing up in the 60s and experiencing the ministry of Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel, even in the tent, and oh my, it should always be like that. (laughs) Well, it's not. You know, our childhood memories very often bring consolation to us. In our high school days, the memory of those invigorate us. And our college days inspire us. 
the memory of those days, and the good old days, we end up idealizing, don't we? But we cannot relive our past, nor recreate a previous spiritual invigoration that we had. God invites us to engage in the present and be fully invested in the now. And it's not just his word for us today. It's been his word all along. Isaiah chapter 43 uncovers this in a glorious way. There the Lord says, do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What's the context of those words? Israel is in exile. They're in Babylon. I'd like to offer a paraphrase of, of those words. Would the Lord say, Stop whining about things not being like the past. Start looking for what new thing God is doing now. Even even in these difficult circumstances, it's happening right before your eyes. Don't, Don't miss it. God is building a new path forward and giving new provision for it. These are his words for us today in our circumstance. The beginning of Isaiah 43 is this. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We can be certain that even now, God is saying this to us. He has created us. He's redeemed us. And we belong to him. And he will not let us go because he is our savior. That is who he is. And he cannot deny himself. So back to Mark. What did Peter and James and John learn on the mountaintop is the big question. Well, note that in verse 7, God does not allow Peter to continue at all. Um, they're not done learning. Verse 7, Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In Matthew, uh, Matthew records that the voice says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Note that the last time that God spoke from heaven audibly like this in Jesus' ministry was at his baptism 
We see it in Mark chapter 1. And there the voice came out of heaven saying, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And at that time, this visitation was preparation for Jesus for his temptations at the beginning of his ministry. The voice out of heaven now, here at the transfiguration, is Jesus' preparation for his suffering at the end of his ministry on earth. Luke records something very interesting in addition. He says, Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. My chosen one. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God. The one and only atonement for sin. The Messiah. The anointed one. The chosen one. And in this, Luke Luke highlights his death. Jesus' death as the purpose of his life. John the Baptist, in John's gospel, John records that John the Baptist, when meeting Jesus at his baptism, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This encounter here on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah is God the Father's preparation of Jesus for the purpose of his coming. All three accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three accounts include the words, listen to him. And that is the lesson for the disciples on, from the mountaintop. Listen to him. The word listen is to hearken, to understand. You see, listening um, implies and calls for a response that honors what has been spoken. It's not just hearing. It's a command. Listen to him. It's a command that demands a response of obedience. And what is the disciples' response? In Matthew 17, verse 6, we read a little more, an unpacking of how they responded. Matthew writes, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Face down. The word simply means the front of or the forwardness, and it is speaking of the falling forward to the ground. And it's not very far off of, a, of the, the word in the New Testament that is translated worship very often. In fact, 60 times in the New Testament, the word proskuneo is, is, is translated worship, and it means to be prostrate or to fall face down. And they were terrified terrified. That word not only means scared out of their wits. No, it doesn't really mean that. 
It means revere and reverence. On a side note here, worship includes many, many things, okay? But I think very, very central to an attitude of worship is reverence and surrender. Reverence is also is often characterized by silence. We don't have to fill every moment with noise. In a worship context, I'd like to, I, I'm going to climb onto my soapbox here. Okay. In a corporate worship context, you need to know that applause is not always appropriate. The only one that should receive applause in, a, in the context of corporate worship is God himself. Applause should not be given for those leading worship. It should, in our culture, it's a, it's a, it's a common um, uh, activity that communicates um, warmth and acceptance and approval, right? And we do that often almost even as a, as a, I don't know, an involuntary response. It's part of our culture. But in the context of worship, it's okay to experience silence. It's not appropriate for us to applaud after every song unless it's clearly directed to God. Understand that. We don't need to be afraid of silence. It also includes the idea of surrender. And, and that is characterized by honestly letting go of the things that have consumed our attention. Maybe it's people, maybe it's situations, maybe it's attitudes that we've been carrying around with us. Reverence and surrender are key components to our corporate worship together. God must be the focus of our attention in worship. And the primary discipline in worship is fixing our eyes on Jesus. And dare I say, it's our personal responsibility to do that. It's not anybody else's responsibility. It's our responsibility to discipline our mind to focus on Christ. A worship leader's responsibility is to provide an opportunity for us to do that. But he or she cannot do that for you. You hear what I'm saying? Where you focus your attention is your responsibility. It's our responsibility as individuals. We can't blame it on somebody else. I'm stepping off my soapbox right now, okay? Verse 8. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Hey, was this a dream? Was this a hallucination of some sort? Hmm. 
In, in Luke chapter 9, it says, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. Did, do you think, maybe Peter, James, and John fell asleep like they did in the Garden of Gethsemane. You think that's what happened? Hmm. No, I think not. This was a very, very real experience and verifiable. Peter writes as much in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is verifiable eyewitness account. Let's look at verse 9 to 13. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what, he, what they had seen. Until the Son of Man rose from the dead... They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And he asked him, they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said that to them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And yet, how is it written that the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. This experience on this mountain changed. It transformed the disciples. It was not Jesus only who was being changed before them, but they themselves experienced a dramatic change. Someone has said that, that great minds talk about ideas, and that's what the disciples were doing. But average minds talk about things, and small minds talk about people. You see, in this moment, the quality of the disciples' debate is elevated by the question that they bring to Jesus. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And their question represents an honest attempt to link the revelation of Jesus as Messiah with the prophecies of Scripture. They're beginning to go beyond their present personal experience with Jesus to buttress their faith their everyday present faith with the prophecies of the past. They're starting to connect the dots. They're beginning to go beyond that just visceral present moment. And Jesus commends them for their intelligent question and answers the disciples in depth. And he asked that they connect John the Baptist with Elijah and recognize the common mission of the two prophets and the, pre 
in preaching repentance and in suffering for the cause of righteousness. And the prophecy that they're debating is found at the end of the Old Testament, the very last few verses in Malachi chapter 4. And there Malachi prophesies that Elijah will come. That same prophecy is referenced in the message of the angel when he speaks to Zacharias, who is the father of John the Baptist. And there in Luke chapter 1, we read that he will turn away the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as the forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then he quotes that, that scripture from Malachi to turn their hearts, the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so, that, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Jesus explains here that Elijah must come in, in the person of John the Baptist or has come in the person of John the Baptist. And the scriptures have been fulfilled. And he takes them deeper and explains further that the scriptures prophesy of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And suddenly we discover that the return trip down the mount is the most meaningful teaching and learning encounter to date between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus takes them full circle. If you remember at the end of chapter 8, we were just there not too long ago. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He was speaking of his death, the purpose of his coming. And here the transfiguration is God's gift to Jesus in preparation for his suffering and his death. Yes, the purpose of his coming. Jesus is... Not the only one who is prepared, however. Peter, James, and John are also prepared in a unique and profound way for what they will experience in the very near future. So in closing, what does this mean for us? It means that God is calling us to be changed or metamorphed also. He's calling us to go deeper with him not to remain spectators of God's power, but to be participants, participants in his purposes. He's calling us today to connect the dots. And his purposes are greater than our personal experience, our personal blessing, our personal spiritual satisfaction, dare I say, even our personal salvation. Because the purposes of God is the salvation of everyone, the salvation of all. Last week, we learned that, that God can use anyone who's loyal to him and bold enough to step out and stop watching and be a part of the game, be a part of his purposes, and that he invites us into his inner circle. Today, 
we know that we've, we've heard that God reveals his holiness and his majesty for this purpose so that we will listen to him. Not for us to enshrine our experience as a spiritual high, but rather to listen to him, to be obedient. And his expectation is that. His expectation of every disciple is obedience. The transfiguration, again, is the preparation for the participation in God's great purpose for Jesus, for his disciples, and for us. Would you stand with me? I think Jesus would say to us the very same thing he said to his disciples in verse 1 of chapter 9. There he says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here, standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Is that for us? What is that power? That power is the dunamis, the power of the resurrection itself. It's the new life that God desires to manifest in ours. His image in us. My sense is that that is what he wants to do among us. We're going to share in communion this morning, and it's important for us to recognize again that God's great purpose was manifest in Jesus in that he came to die. Not just a, a, the death of a criminal, but to die as Messiah, the Son of God, so that he might redeem, that he might atone for our sin. Now understand that in the Old Testament, atonement meant to cover sin. But the glorious truth in the New Testament is that the atonement of Jesus erases our sin. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this great gift that you have given us to remember your death, your suffering, and to know that it is the beginning of life for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not scorn the cross, but rather you pursued the purpose for which you were sent. And that is even this, the redemption of our souls. We bless you for that truth. We bless you, Lord, for this unspeakable gift. And that you invite us even into your resurrected life.